turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, verse 12, where we're looking at this morning. We have jumped into the final week of Christ's earthly ministry, leading up to his death on the cross that we've just been singing about and worshiping him for this morning. As I mentioned, we're going to be concluding this message today by observing the Lord's Supper together as a church family. Uh, perhaps you've wondered, well, what are all the circumstances surrounding that Last Supper? Why was it so important? Why did Jesus Christ pl plan so much around this final meal with his disciples? And we'll see the significance of that together. In fact, as you read Mark chapter 14, I alluded to this last week, you do not see Jesus Christ as a victim being acted upon. Which may seem strange, because we know that Jesus Christ was betrayed, he was deserted by his disciples, he was arrested, and he was killed. That sounds like a victim. It sounds like someone being acted upon. But as we read our passage today, you'll see something profound. Jesus was not a victim. That Jesus was planning this final week of his life because this plan was the plan since the beginning of time that God in his sovereignty planned for Christ, his son, to die on the cross for us. Today in our passage, we're going to be seeing the sovereign sacrifice. We see something really unique in this passage where God is the writer of the story of history, and yet in this passage, he's also one of the characters. And we see the control and the sovereignty that one might exercise if they are both a character in the story and also the writer of the grand story. As we look and consider the, the preparation for the Passover, this last meal, and the meaning behind it, we, our prayer is that we all know Christ more and what his sacrifice truly represents. Let's read our passage together. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. We'll be reading down through verse 26. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread... When they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to, him, said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said unto them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared, and there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and he prepared the Passover. In the evening he came to the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say unto you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, One by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? He answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it has been written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say unto you, I will no longer drink from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
Let's pray before we dig into this passage. Lord, we thank you for your plan of salvation. And as we look at this Last Supper and the truths you have for us in it, I pray that we would see you as our sovereign sacrifice who died for our sins. And even as we participate in this supper at the end of this service, that we would consider and remember the joy of the gospel. In your sons' name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned in our passage today, we're going to see Christ's total control over this entire situation. And not just in our passage today, but all throughout Mark chapter 14. If you read ahead and you read Mark chapter 14, you see Christ is in control. All around him, people are scheming, thinking that they have this master plan to do away with Jesus once and for all. But in the midst of it, Jesus stands confident and in control. And nothing happening in this last week will be a surprise to Jesus. Every person and actor in this chapter is a character in the story that God has written. The scheming leaders and the treacherous disciple are being moved into position according to God's plan. This is all meant to be. Jesus is not a victim. He is not one acted upon. He is the one doing the acting. And from the beginning of creation, this plan of salvation was written in stone by God the Father. And now that plan is being executed. We see Jesus knowing exactly what will happen before it happens. We see him foretelling the actions of Judas, Peter, and the rest of the disciples. We see him preparing for his own death. Even at the Last Supper, he says, Take, eat, this is my body, which will be broken. This is my blood, which will be poured out for you. Before it ever happens, Christ is in complete control. Let's look in our passage today just exactly how control, in control Christ is. He has a sovereign plan in the preparation for the Passover. Where do we see this? We see his control even in the timing. We see in verse 12 that it's the first day of the unleavened bread when they kill the Passover lamb. And it's at this time that God enacts his plan to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And we see the detailed plan for preparation. He had it all laid out. He tells his disciples exactly where to go, what to do, who to meet, and what to prepare. We see his sovereign plan even over his own betrayal. Usually betrayal comes as a shock to the one betrayed. But Jesus, at the Last Supper, looks up at his disciples and says, Truly, verily, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. For the Son of Man, he says later, goes as it is written of him. This is the plan. We see his sovereign plan even in the Last Supper. Before his body is ever broken and his blood is ever spilled, Jesus signifies his death. It is sure to happen. Truly, verily, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day. Christ is in complete control over this last week of his life. And if he's in complete control over this last week of his life, what does that say? That his death is far more than an accident. His death is far more than an unfortunate tragedy that happened to a good teacher. His death was necessary. His death was planned because, as we'll see today, it is the only way that you and I can receive forgiveness of our sins. Through the circumstances leading up to his death and the events at the Last Supper, Jesus is communicating to us what his death is all about. In other words, I think from our passage today, Jesus actually provides a framework to help us understand and have confidence in his plan. 
Why would someone orchestrate the events surrounding his death even up to the exact preparation of this Last Supper? It's because he wants to communicate to us exactly what his sacrifice means. How does our passage flesh that out? I believe, first of all, that Jesus wants you to know that his sacrifice is substitutionary. His sacrifice is substitutionary. We see this, first of all, in the intentionality of the timing. We saw in our passage last week that the priests did not want to arrest Jesus during the feast day. Do you remember that from last week? They did not want this to happen during Passover. There's a bunch of people in Jerusalem. It would create an uproar in the crowd. They were trying to avoid that at all costs. But God's plan overrides theirs. And we see in verse 12 that it's the first day of unleavened bread. And then Mark specifies that it is the day that they sacrifice the Passover lamb. So naturally, being observant Jews, the disciples ask Jesus, where does he want to prepare the Passover meal? And what do we see Jesus do in this passage? He sends two of his disciples, who are identified in the Gospel of Luke as James and John, and has them follow some very specific instructions, some strange instructions. Have you ever wondered why didn't Jesus just say, go down the street, take your first left, it'll be the second house on the right, you can't miss it, right? Why, why did he go through, I mean, think about these instructions he gives. He says, all right, go out, I want you to find a man carrying a jar. You're going to find a man carrying a jar, and you're just going to follow that guy, all right? Just follow him, right? You may think you're weird, just follow him, and whatever house he enters, just walk in, and then you're going to go to the owner of that house, and you're going to say, hey, the teacher needs to celebrate the Passover, and he'll lead you to an upper room, and it'll all be prepared and ready for you. Why does Jesus give such strange and specific instructions? If you were in the shoes of the disciples, what would Jesus' instructions convey to you? They would convey to me, Christ is in complete control of this. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He has a plan and he is executing it. I mean, imagine if my family and your family are going to lunch after church. And so you ask me, well, where should we eat? And I tell you, go out to the parking lot. And when you see the car with a yellow bumper sticker, I want you to follow that car. In whichever restaurant it pulls up to, enter that restaurant and tell the manager that Aaron is asking for his room. And you will find a reserved room set up and ready to go. Now, other than that being kind of creepy, what, what, what would we gather from that if I actually gave you those instructions? Maybe Aaron is trying to be some kind of weird secret agent, but also he has a plan. He has this whole thing orchestrated, a little too much, but he has it orchestrated. This is exactly what's happening in our passage today. The disciples are seeing the plan of Jesus unfold. It is Jesus' plan. And we see his sovereign control even over these circumstances. And as verse 12 indicates, the timing of the plan is the most important part. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. This timing is intentional. What's the significance of this timing? Well, the Passover, if you're unaware of what this signifies, was the commemoration of Israel's protection from the Lord when he passed through the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn. And we read this in, the story, in Exodus chapter 12. Israel were slaves in, the, in, in Egypt, and God is delivering his people. He sends the plagues upon the Egyptians. The final one is the killing of the firstborn. And so he tells his people that they are to kill a lamb without blemish in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. And in verse 7, he commands them to take the blood and put the blood on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house. In Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, we read this. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. 
I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. And I will strike the land of Egypt. We read also in Exodus chapter 12 that throughout Israel's history, they were called to observe this Passover in commemoration of this event, remembering that God passed over their houses because of the blood. From the beginning of their history, Israel commemorated a time when a spotless lamb poured out his blood as a substitute for them, protecting them from the wrath of God. And Jesus wanted his death to be in conjunction with the Passover celebration. It's not the timing that the chief priests wanted. In fact, it was the last thing they wanted. But that would not stop Jesus because everything in the Old Testament was pointing to him. The Passover lamb was meant to point forward to a greater sacrifice for our sins. A spotless lamb who would pour out his blood to protect us from the wrath of to come. In other words, the timing of Christ's death actually helps us interpret his death. The death of Christ would be forever connected to the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, a substitutionary death on our behalf. In fact, we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And as he orchestrates the events surrounding the final week of his earthly life, Jesus wants you to see clearly via the intentional timing of his death, that his death on the cross was a substitution. Christ is your Passover lamb. He will pour out his blood to cover those who have faith in him. The sovereignty, even over the circumstances, point to the fact that Christ's death is a substitution. The connection to the Passover highlights our biggest problem. At the first Passover, death came not to those who were the worst of sinners or didn't do enough good things. It came to those who ignored the warnings of God. It didn't matter if you were Egyptian or Israelite. We were all sinners. We were all going our own way. You may not be as sinful as the other guy, but you're ignoring the warnings of God. That is the biggest problem. The connection with the Passover highlights our biggest danger. At the first Passover in Egypt, what were the people being protected from? They weren't being protected from Satan. They weren't being protected from the Egyptians. They were being protected from God. The Bible says that those who reject God are under his wrath. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so God tells the people of Israel, my wrath is coming. Put the blood on your doorposts that I might pass over. And the connection to the Passover highlights our only hope. At that first Passover, what was the only deliverance? It was the blood of the spotless lamb. In the first Passover, we see the wrath of God against sin and the love and mercy of God combined. It didn't matter who you were, how impressive, how religious. It was only because of the blood of that lamb that you had protection and deliverance. Jesus died for you so that he could take your place, that he could be your substitute, your Passover lamb. 
And in the timing and planning of the Passover, Jesus is orchestrating the events to communicate the meaning of his sacrifice. And so at that first night when the Passover lamb is slain, he plans this dinner. And as we enter the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, we continue to see his complete control over the situation as Jesus wants you to know that his sacrifice is ordained. It is here in our passages in verse 18 that he talks about a betrayal that one of his disciples, we read earlier in Mark 14 that we know it's Judas, the other disciples do not know this, that one of his disciples would betray him, turn him over. But he points to the certainty of this betrayal. We find them reclining at the table in verse 18 when the spirit of fellowship is broken by some startling words from Jesus. Jesus says, truly, I say unto you, one of you will betray me, and it's one of you that's eating with me. In verse 19, this clearly troubles the disciples. Each one starts to ask, is it me? Is it me? The thought of someone from this inner circle actually betraying Christ must have been shocking. Like the thought of a lifelong family friend completely rejecting you. And as I mentioned, betrayal usually comes as a shock, especially to the one being betrayed. We see no shock from Jesus. He knew that his betrayer was at the table with them. He knew who he was and what he was about to do. Imagine the audacity it would take to look at your betrayer straight in the face and say, you are going to betray me. You would think that simply exposing this threat would be enough to dissuade the would-be perpetrator, causing him to slink back into the shadows to wait for a more opportune time, but no such thing happens. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice was ordained. 1 Peter 1, verse 20 says that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And how could Christ be so certain of this plan? Look with me in verse 21. He says, for the Son of Man, that's him, goes as it is written of him. Jesus is saying, the story of my sacrifice has already been written, and I am going just as it has been written of me. And part of that story is a betrayal. This betrayal is happening because that is how God planned that it would happen before the world was ever formed. In fact, if you would, turn over to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, because we see later, after Christ dies and rises again, when Judas, having since perished, his spot needs to be replaced among the apostles. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, the apostle Peter stands up and says this, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was all in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. He says the scripture had to be fulfilled concerning Judas. God did not look into the future, see that Judas would betray Jesus, and then craft a plan around Judas' choice. It was prophesied and decided by God that Judas would betray Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. His betrayal by Judas was part 
of him being delivered up. And that delivering up was a part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so Jesus looks at his disciples and says, one of you will betray me because this is what is written of the Son of Man. It must be ordained and it must happen. Jesus is sovereign over his sacrifice and he is sovereign over his own betrayal. But, lest we conclude that Jesus was a mindless, or that Judas was a mindless robot, a cog in the wheel of God's plan, Jesus continues in verse 21 to describe the responsibility of the betrayer. In verse 21 of Mark 14, we read this, For the Son of Man is goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. While God is sovereign over this plan, Jesus upholds the responsibility and the culpability of Judas for making such a choice to betray the Son of God. How is it that God uses the free will of man to accomplish his purpose? I'll give you the exact right answer. We don't know. As we read earlier in Acts chapter 2, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and yet also he was crucified by the hands of lawless men. Peter, Paul, in fact, answers this objection, this question in Romans chapter 9, verses 18 through 20, where he asks, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, and you will say to me then, well, why then does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? How could God be so completely sovereign and man be so completely responsible? We don't know. How are you to question God? All we know is that in Mark 14, Jesus puts both truths right next to each other in verse 21 and doesn't seem to have a problem with it. He says, the son of man must go as it has been written of him, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. But let's not let the perplexity of this thought, I know I snuck that into your small groups this morning if you were here, I had fun with that one and I'm glad I wasn't part of the discussion. I just kind of dropped the bomb and I left, all right? But Let's not the perplexity of this thought cause us to forget the impact that this should have on us. When I read this section of our passage, I see that the death of Christ was inevitable, that nothing can change this plan. What was ordained before the foundation of the world would most certainly come to pass, and not even the acts of wicked men could stop what God would do. Quite the contrary. It's almost as if God hijacks the wickedness of men to accomplish his divine purposes. Nothing can stop this sovereign sacrifice. I see the death of Christ as necessary. Why would God the Father ordain such a plan and orchestrate the events of human history to point toward this exact time in history? Because it is what was necessary to pay for the sins of the world. Nothing else would be sufficient. If there were another way to accomplish the salvation of souls, surely God would have taken it. If such a sacrifice was ordained before the foundation of the world, we must pay careful attention to it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This sacrifice is ordained before the foundation of the world, and the betrayal of the Son of Man was part of of that ordained plan. His sacrifice was substitutionary. His sacrifice was ordained. And then thirdly, Jesus wants you to know that his sacrifice is final. Read with me in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 24. And this is where we read, 
of the Last Supper. And as they were eating, he took bread, and he blessed and broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He speaks in these passages of a final covenant. Before his body is broken, Jesus knows that it will happen. Before he even sheds his blood, Jesus knows that his blood will be shed. He is the sovereign sacrifice. But through his control of the circumstances, Jesus is communicating yet another truth about his sacrifice. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. Now, when the disciples hear blood of the covenant, what would they have thought of? Think with me, if you want to turn there, you may, in Exodus chapter 24. When Moses is bringing the law to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. We read in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to the ox, of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. This is talking about the Mosaic Covenant, the law. And when that was established, it was inaugurated with the blood of the covenant. This was a covenant of law, one that brought a reminder of sin every year, one that required more and more blood. It was a covenant of obedience that required our cooperation. All the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. This is a covenant with the people. But when Jesus pours out his blood, when he holds up that cup and says, this is the blood of my covenant, this is not the type of covenant that Jesus is inaugurating. This is a new covenant. This is a final covenant. And this is not a covenant with you, but it is rather a covenant for you. This is the blood of the covenant, he says, which is poured out for many. And by the shedding of his blood for us, Jesus is making the final sacrifice. Listen to how Hebrews explains it in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. Thus it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. By identifying his blood as the blood of the covenant, Jesus reveals himself to be the final and sufficient payment for our sin. And he establishes a new covenant, not a covenant of law in which we earn, we, we obey to maintain a covenant, but a covenant of his blood for us. And by identifying his blood as the blood of the covenant, Jesus reveals to himself to be the final and sufficient payment for our sins. And then he points to a final accomplishment. In verse 25, we see the finality of the accomplishment before he has ever accomplished it. 
Verse 25, Verily I say unto you, I will not again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Here Jesus points to a future day when he will one day drink again from the fruit of the vine. And when will that day come? Would you turn with me to the end of your scriptures? Mark, er, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Verse 6. Revelation 19, verse 6, we read, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Bless, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Jesus expresses the finality of his sacrifice by indicating that this would be the last time he would partake of this supper until the last days, in fact, the final day. Because scripture says that one day, when God's full plan comes to fruition, we will sit down at something called the marriage supper of the what? The lamb. The Passover lamb. The lamb that was slain. The sacrificial lamb. The lamb ordained before the foundation of the world. Having paid the final sacrifice for our sins, he will one day sit down with us in the kingdom as the worthy lamb and as the conquering lamb. And before that day comes, at this last supper, Jesus says, this is the last time I'm going to do this until that final day. And in the meantime, he says, I want you to keep doing this. And I want you to remember me. And I want you to declare my death until I come. This blood is poured out for you. And it is a final payment. This is what Jesus wants you to know about his sacrifice. As we participate in the Lord's Supper, we do not crucify Jesus again because his death on the cross was sufficient for all time and he poured out his blood for you. What does Jesus want you to know about his sacrifice this morning? We've seen in our passage that Jesus has complete control over the circumstances surrounding his death. This was his plan. And he wants us to learn three things. By orchestrating the timing of his death, Jesus wants you to know that his death is substitutionary. He is the Passover lamb. By orchestrating his betrayal leading to his death, Jesus wants you to know that his death was ordained, that not even the wicked acts of men can thwart the plans of God. And by orchestrating the message of the Lord's Supper, Jesus wants you to know that his death is final. His blood of the new covenant is, has been poured out for you. And the Bible says all you must do is believe in Jesus, to admit your sins, to turn to him for salvation, to trust in his substitutionary and final death ordained before the foundation of the world. And if you have trusted in Christ, remember these truths that we observe the Lord's Supper together this morning. Rejoice in what Christ has done for you. If you're here today and you have not embraced this gift, 
If you have not placed your faith in Christ, if you have not claimed this substitutionary death on your behalf, our, our heart and our prayer is that even going through the Lord's Supper, that we proclaim to you the joy of the gospel. That we, as we remember this sacrifice for us, we proclaim to you that this gift can be for you as well. It is not about, a, it's not about works. It's not about doing enough. Consider again the Passover celebration in Egypt. It was not about who was the best. It was about who was under the blood. It is only because of that we have forgiveness of sins. Would you cry out to Jesus to save you this morning? As I mentioned, after I pray, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We're going to be remembering this death. And I pray that even as we consider this passage, that you've been thinking about the significance of this death in your own life. And now we have the privilege of actually observing this commandment that Christ has called us to, to proclaim and remember his death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. As we consider the final week of your life on earth, we see someone in control. You came to this earth with a plan, and it was a plan to save us from our sins, to rescue us from darkness, to give us newness of life. Lord, we are overwhelmed by the magnitude of your grace. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet received that grace, they would call out to you, their Passover lamb, who has shed his blood on their behalf, that they might come to them, hit you for salvation. I pray you'd unite our hearts as we observe and remember your death, as we observe your table together.